Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hello everyone. Welcome. This is the second talk with two giants in the area of education. We have uh, John Hattie and David Mitchell. Welcome back for the second talk. Good to be back. Good okay. to see you again. Good to see the two of you. And today we will talk about uh, universal design for learning. But before we start with that, we will round up uh, a discussion we had the, <clears throat> the previous talk about inclusion as a philosophy and there you can talk about two uh, competing philosophies so classificatory or relational worldviews wonder if you could start david if you have some reflections about that yes i've been uh, looking at this topic uh, for another purpose that a book that i'm writing <clears throat> and i'd like to start with the onion um i think we have to uh, explore um, the heart of the matter. So when we, if you imagine the onion being unpeeled, what is at the base? What is the uh, the core of the onion? And uh, I've been thinking about uh, uh, world views that people bring uh, to understanding uh, issues to do with education. And uh, I think there are two world views that are, uh, uh, in conflict, and we've got to uh, examine uh, which one uh, should have precedence, uh, or is it a combination of both? Um, and I'll just take a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, uh, talking about the two world views. The first one is a what I've called a classificatory world view, and. Um, it goes back to a Swede um, in one some ways. Carl uh, Linnaeus, is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, yeah. Linnaeus, exactly. Linnaeus, yeah. yeah. Um, as we all know, he's the father of taxonomy, taxonomy, uh, classification, uh, in this case of um, all animals and plants. And that system is still in use now. And... Um, he represented um, the thrust during the um, Enlightenment to um, towards science and looking at developing instruments uh, to measure uh, the world. And knowledge was, at that time, during the Enlightenment, um, increasingly being specialized into different um, different disciplines and it goes back further than um Linnaeus, i think to uh people like descartes um who argued that people should be separated from nature 
and eventually from each other. Um, so we had a, a thrust during the Enlightenment um, to uh, classify, to count, to examine in a scientific way. Um, we had Diderot, uh, the French uh, philosopher, deciding that we could uh, classify or, or, or describe everything that it existed at that time. And he came up with um, a series of encyclopedias. We had the British Encyclopedia being developed at that time. And this resulted in what was called the Great Chain of Being. And this classified the world with God at the top, followed by angels, followed by kings, followed by aristocrats, followed by civilized humans, um, savages, animals, plants, and minerals. We had this kind of hierarchy being developed. So we've got classification and hierarchies being developed. And I think the, the out, one of the outcomes of that is um, the whole notion of classifying children into their um, ability levels. We have, therefore, the development of special education. So that's the class of what I've called the, the classificatory worldview. Now, in contrast to that, we also had during the Enlightenment um, another uh, worldview being promoted by people like Adam Smith, um, talking about um, economics, uh, Tom Paine in America, talking about uh, the rights of ordinary people. We had Mary Wollstonecroft talking about um, uh, rights for women. And these, this group of people, a lot of them were incidentally Scottish uh, in origin, um, these people were saying, no, we have to look at relationships and connections among human beings. Um, and we have to look at unity. We have to look at belonging. We have to look at cohesion. So this led, I think, to what's known as the relational uh, world view. And this, I think, underpins what we're talking about with inclusive education, um, the relationships between uh, people um, and not classifying them in um, terms of ability levels and uh, so on. So we've got the contrasting worldviews. I think we need a little bit of, not a little bit, a, a substantial amount of um, both, particularly though we've got to look at relational worldviews rather than classificatory. So that's the point that I, I wanted to to raise when we're looking at um, inclusive education. The distinction. That's a nice. Between, yeah, distinction between classificatory and relational. And that's a nice segue, David, into what we're also talking about last time, and that we have a, a massive tendency to want to classify 
make relational statements, but all the answers in the variance. And the variance within, let alone among students, is dramatic. And so yes. in many ways in the 1900s, um, we the classification relational models kind of worked reasonably well. But in the last 20 years, we have so broadened the concept of what special education is, it won't be long before, in fact, we've already heard it, every child is special. And so you get that continuum where we used to worry about the five or 10% of students. Now it's more like 20 to 30% of students. And so that's brought into question some of those kinds of models of how we classify a, a, a child, how we see them in relationship to others. And so what we're looking for now um, is perhaps an alternative model. And uh, I'm going to leave that you, for you to think about, about how we can deal with these students who have a need for almost continual attention um, in a classroom compared to those that are coming into this area that are, are demanding uh, IEPs, that are demanding more specific funding. That's boomed the number so dramatically. Now, it's not as if these all these students don't deserve and don't need some kind of special education, but it is breaking down the concept of it being a smaller percentage of our school population. And so when you then ask for solutions, um, there are very few sizes that fit all. And that's the kind of dilemma we're in today. And here in Australia, for example, there's a big inquiry uh, with our national disability scheme, where once you're classified into the national disability scheme, you, you get a working wage and your carer gets a working wage for life. Well, the numbers have blown out dramatically in the last few years because even doctors are now advertising for five or $10,000 will guarantee you a diagnosis. So we've got a problem on our hands. Um, and in some ways, perhaps it's time to pause and say, how do we get universal design working for every student, regardless of their placement? But we do have a problem. Yeah, yeah. I um, wanted to bring in another concept. I think it's related. Um, and uh, do you know Russell, Russell Bishop's work at all, John? Um, oh, very, he's done... very good, close friend. Extremely brilliant. Yes, yes. Um, he talks about uh, teaching to the northeast, and uh, I've uh, adapted my that concept to my own thinking. And uh, I don't know whether you'd be able to see this, but um, if we think of um, this kind of model that I've got here, can you see it? A bit higher, a bit higher, a bit more higher. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I should have done a better model of it. Um, but what I'm saying is, um, in this model, we've got two dimensions uh, which we have to uh, look at uh, um, in terms of um, our teachers. And across this dimension, or, uh, this dimension here, I've called this the... Um, evidence-based pedagogy and using the kind of concepts that you have put forward john and that i put forward in my books we've got people who um, would be adopting um, 
to a high degree, evidence-based pedagogy. So on this domain here, we've got um, those high and low on using evidence-based pedagogy. So we could plot people according to where they occur on, on, on that dimension. And on this dimension, which is, I think, the newish one that's coming through, we've got what I've called the relational um, pedagogy or social relationships. So we've got people who are low or high. Now, I've said that what we've got to aim at is teachers who have both high um, um, evidence-based pedagogy commitment and practice, um, and also high social relationships. So that the, we've got to, to target teachers <clears throat> coming into this quadrant here, this um, equivalent to Bishop's uh, teaching to the Northeast. Um, so that, that's the kind of philosophy that's underpinning um, my thinking. Uh, just for your for your background, Kenneth. Yeah, uh, Russell is a, a New Zealand um, academic, um, uh, like most of us now, retired. But he he probably did the best work in the world on how you work with minority students, Maori students, in mainstream classrooms. And what he discovered mainly was that um, teachers, through no ill intent, often had unconscious biases in terms of how they interacted with the students. But more critically, when you actually ask the Maori students what their experience is like in the classroom, it can be quite different from the, the, the Pākehā, the white people kids in the classrooms. And until the teachers know that, um, it doesn't make a difference. Like I've seen him in classrooms when a teacher hands back student work. And for each of the, the, the Pākehā kids, the teacher gives the, the work in their hands. For the Māori kids, they put it on the desk. Now, there's no necessary difference in their intent in doing that, but the Māori kids notice this. We're treated differently here. The teacher doesn't like us. And these teachers genuinely do like these kids. They just didn't realise that from the student's point of view, they didn't. So he did this. And the other thing he did, which I thought was quite um, dramatically powerful, is he showed that what worked with these, these students is they argued they did not get challenging work particularly compared to the white kids in the class. They didn't feel they got challenging work. And what works best is exactly what David has written about, is really powerful teaching methods. And it's not giving them any lesser. It's giving them actually the best teaching methods. And as bottom line, as I read it, is what works with Maori kids works with all kids, but not necessarily the other way around. And so it's been very profound. And then he's saying, as, as David has pointed out with his more recent work, is if we actually move into that northwest quadrant and use the most optimal teaching methods, then you're going to get the best effect for all students. Only if you pay attention to the student's voice about their learning. Hmm. And that sounds to me what we talked about last time. This fits very well with inclusion as a philosophy and then add evidence-based strategies to that. Yes. Yes. Complementary to that, you added this with relations. But I think that everyone agrees on that you need to be quite relational to be successful in a, in a classroom. And then we will get into the next subject after this, I guess, into UDL. It fits 
quite nice to that as well. But maybe David want to, to add something more in this one. I think it everything fits nicely together. And I, I totally agree on this Northeast teaching. Uh, I don't know, theory or strategy or what you what you should call it. I think yeah. it's uh, use other words to say more or less the same thing as, as last time, even if it gets you you get you look from this from a coin from the other side it feels to me like uh, everything goes together yeah kenneth you've been talking to some teachers and some parents i understand since we uh, and since we last not met. to so many parents but some teachers and some students yes uh, yeah uh, what, what were some of the issues that that they raised what yeah. are some of the questions that uh, they came up with yeah when when they talk what when i talk to students what they they want i talk to some students at my own school and some students actually at the the train station when i was going or bus station in in a nearby city i just uh, had some spare time so i i went to a group of kids in like grade i think it was 7 8 swedish grade just uh, had the same questions to them uh, what they felt they needed to to be successful in their classrooms and uh, they wanted things to have really clear expectations what would be happening in the classroom uh, they wanted to feel that uh, that the the teachers believed in them and that that the teachers liked them they talked a lot lot about relations uh, and then just to to they couldn't specify always, but they wanted to to get good support. But they wanted things to be really, really clear, like clear expectations. Was I think everyone said that. Yes, uh, and I think uh, the teachers I talked to, they also agree on the same things, but they don't always do the same things. Uh, of course, they there has to be diversity among teachers as well because they have different skills and are different, but. Uh, uh, I sort of like what what the students, the kids say that fits well well with what we're talked about here. I think mm -hmm. they want clarity, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, I would argue they want challenge as well. Yeah, but that transparency, what the expectations are, what success looks like. Yeah, um, and the irony is, in many ways, is that unlike us, they don't talk about teaching. They talk no. about learning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> agree. Uh, so maybe we should adopt some of their language and help them on the strategies of learning and help them on the understanding of uh, for them to know where they are relative to what success is. And you know, th those are tough skills, but they are critical skills. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. Yeah, but. If we come comes back to the philosophy of inclusion uh, in Sweden, at least we often talk about uh, more and more about UDL, Universal Design for Learning, uh, but we don't always agree on what what is that actually. It's like inclusion. It's not uh, uh, in Sweden. I think it's getting more and more applied and used, uh, but not necessarily the same way or. We say same concept or people 
people say they will be using Udell, but they will do very different things, I think. Mm-hmm. So would you call Udell, is it uh, is that a learning strategy, teaching strategy? Is it a framework? Uh, when it works well, what, what should it be? Now, I would argue it's primarily a way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, the minute it gets into strategies, then we can administer the strategies, but not go to the intent. Uh, the intent of universal design is that every student, no matter what their background is, what their attributes are, what their disposition is, should be experiencing a rich, complex curriculum. Yeah. Now, if, if you pause there, I would think that it's very hard for anyone to disagree with that. Yeah. But then you go to the next step, and this is where I think I see the problems with UDL. There are so many ways you can do it, good and bad, to yeah. do that. Like you go straight away to the what I see is the the incorrect concept of differentiation, and that is you give different activities to different groups of students, yeah. as opposed to um, what uh, Caroline Tomlinson and others have argued is that you allow different times and different ways to get to the same outcomes. Now that's a massive difference in ways of thinking, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, as often I see UDL implemented, is yeah, we want every kid to have a rich, complex curriculum, so we're going to give this student lesser or this student more because that's all they can do, and they get a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so uh, I, I go back, as we talked about last time, is that you got to start with thinking about the least restrictive environment for every student. And this, this requires to the students at the top of the distribution, as well as those who, who can perhaps come in with uh, lesser understanding of their achievement capabilities, is that for all those students, regardless, um, we, we should be thinking about learning progressions for all of them. Um, yeah. And that includes multiple ways and multiple times to get there. And the teacher's job, as I see under UDL, is to find out where each kid is on their journeys towards the success criteria and then re- refine the teaching to help them maximize get there. But uh, David, I don't know about you, but too often I see UDL as an excuse for in, within class, between class grouping, uh, for treating kids differently in terms of the rich complexity of the curriculum. And so it's, it really is a lovely idea, is my thinking, but it's in the delivery, we're after see it breaking down. Yeah, I, I think we've got to look at what are the the fundamentals of UDL. And uh, I think it comes down to providing uh, a variety of ways for uh, children to um, approach learning uh, and uh, um, it it means that we've got to have a variety of teaching strategies which which incorporate auditory visual um opportunities to experience uh, uh the world in, in in a variety of different ways uh using text using graphics and so on we've we've got to have a variety of um uh, teaching methods or a variety of um, ways in which teach students can can express their their learning uh, rather than simply say using uh, writing as a as a means, but also using say dance, using music, using uh, graphics 
in a whole lot of different ways. But David, let me ask you then, one of my problems when I read about UDL is it then moves from that, which I agree with, to the yeah. next step, and that is student choice. I have serious problems with that. Um, some students who are reasonably high on self-regulation uh, can make some very good choices. Uh, a lot of novices who don't know what they don't know sometimes struggle to make very good choices. And then you move not too far away to the notion of learning styles and that students should have options to choose particular ways of being taught. And we know the evidence on that is absolutely rubbish and I've never heard so much nonsense preached for a long time as, as about that. And in fact, if, if a student has a particular learning style, it's incumbent upon us to teach them other ways of learning or learning preferences. And so I struggle with UDL when it moves from what you just said to the next step where there's choice because it favours certain students who can make optimal choices and it doesn't favour many others. And I think this is why we have a teacher. We're supposed to be the expert. We're supposed to know the optimal ways of doing that. It doesn't mm. mean to say that we can't engage with the students about multiple ways of doing it. I struggle with that choice notion that's part of UDL. Yeah. yeah. But if you use choice, if you use the teacher, the teacher doesn't have to give the students any choice whatsoever. They can give them like two choices that the teacher think is, is good for that student, a good challenge for that student. Then it could as act as, as a motivator for the students that they have yes, some influence. Okay, and, and I'm not saying that you should never talk to students or listen to their viewpoints. No. As Russell Bishop showed with the contrary. What no. I'm saying is that the, the best choice to make about teaching is the one that optimizes the uh, biggest I'm amount interested. of progress to yeah, goal. I totally agree on that. Yeah. David, you're pondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think you're, you're right. Um, we, we run the risk of um, sort of classifying children and saying uh, that a child can only learn through a visual means or an auditory means. Um, I think there's a balance to be achieved by... Um, by providing those opportunities without saying that this is the only way uh, children can learn. Yeah. Christine Ruby Davies did some really good work on this a few years ago. What she discovered is that kids who were having difficulties at school more often chose the kinesthetic and spatial, whereas those who were doing really well chose the um, the more uh, what do I call? What do they call it? Um, the less kinesthetic and spatial, they wanted to go with the verbal kind of notions. And so, what that work showed very clearly is that when you get into those learning preferences, those kids who most need the verbal kind of methods are the ones that least want to do it, and therefore you get a massively stretched out uh, consequence of talking yeah. about that whole learning styles notion. And so, that's when it comes back. If 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 in UDL as you said, Kenneth, a teacher maximizes the best choices, yeah. sometimes by teaching the students yeah. what the student, what the choices are. But the choice is a function of growth. It's not a function of preference either yeah. of the student or the teacher. 
So when it comes to UDL, when it gets to the choice notion, yes, if it engages students in making the best choices, but not if it leads to a preference. And sometimes that literature is too strong about that. Yeah. So offering uh, multiple uh, ways of teaching is then like a consensus on good application of UDL. If UDL should be a way of thinking then. Do you agree on that, David? Or do you have another view of how you should look at UDL to make it uh, uh, make it successful? Yeah, I think uh, we come back to what what makes up good teaching. And I think good teaching um, uh, uses a variety of different um, uh, means, different um, strategies, different uh, media uh, to convey ideas to children. Um, yeah. So it, it's not so much looking at uh, um, the children's uh, learning styles, which I, I, yeah. I agree is uh, just got no no basis in uh, research, uh, as uh, giving teachers uh, or ensuring that teachers use a variety of different ways of of giving information, of explaining uh, concepts to children, uh, using visual means, using auditory means, uh, using a whole variety of different means to to convey their their ideas. And I think um, you know, straight, working off David's point there is, it's it's UDL is not only about multiple ways of expression. It's it's allowing multiple ways of students seeing the world. It allows multiple yeah. ways of motivation for why kids are there. Yeah. And the fundamental one of the fundamental premises, which surely we agree with is that there's no such thing as the average child. No. And when you look at lessons, we tend to focus on the average child and allow for differences. And what UDL is saying is, is no, that doesn't make a lot of sense because every child kind of has differences in yeah. lots of different ways. And uh, as we were commenting earlier, in today's classrooms, ironically, probably half the size in terms of the number of students from where we went to school has probably more variance in it than what it was 40 or 50 years ago. And so it comes back again, as, as I want to keep coming back to, it's, it's the variance that matters. Uh, and how we allow for that variance is the fundamental premise of, of UDI, UDL. Um, and I think it's a very healthy way of looking at things. It just makes it tougher for the teacher. It was so much easier to teach to the average and allow for the differences. <laughs> yeah. But that's not very successful anymore. No. We still have a tendency to want to reduce that variance. And one of the things that I certainly spent a lot of time on in, in the, the sequel that I've, I've just published is that the dramatically negative effect of labeling students, um, minus 0.6, is invidious and nasty. And it's happening more and more, not only by teachers, but by the systems, by the parents who want to come up with labels. And uh, you know, the sad fact is that these labels um, they do represent quite often real, significant, important notions. But sometimes the same label can have massive variance within it. 
So our tendency at the moment to, to love to label the kids. Now, part of it then relates to the funding. And when we talk about special needs kids, it is a big funding issue. And of course, we want to make sure that the funding is going to the right kids. So we've built this kind of inbuilt destruct button into our whole model that labelling is necessary for good diagnosis and intervention, but labelling can also be invidious in terms of demanding that teachers deal with students in particular ways, in different ways, and it's really making a tremendous demand on our teachers. And this is why um, notions like UDL, I think, are very powerful because it starts from the premise that every kid is different. Yeah. But wow, it makes it tougher for them. And David, when I read your book, because your book's specifically about these students, um, the, the overlap and parallel to what I've been arguing is dramatic. And so I draw the conclusion that you know, great teaching is great teaching for all kids, as long as we can be quite systematic about what we mean by that. And particularly, as, as you've argued, and I've tried to argue many times, great teaching is a function of the maximum impact that we have on the students' learning. It's not yes. a preference or a, a choice by the teacher. And this is really highlights that um, the, the UDL principle, not only do there have to be variety in terms of what the, uh, the students experience, but variety in what the teacher offers. And one of my big frustrations in my work at the moment uh, um, is that knowing when the right time is to use the right methods. And when I try and search the literature to give me some help. I struggle to find any work on that. It's almost as if a teaching method works because a teaching method works. Surely there's a right time to use this and a right time to use mm -hmm. that, as there is a right time with this student and these students compared to those students. And I think the success of teachers comes very much to um, kind of what you were talking about at the start, David. How do you make those quick judgments about relational decisions between kids about how they're progressing and be agile? And not assuming that it's not always the same in the same time and it's not always the same students. Well, wow, that's a massive demand on teachers. But when you see it working, it's quite dramatically powerful. Should we be looking at um, individualization of teaching? Well, the effect size of individualization is very low, and it's the same with um, uh, personalization. And you know, they're very seductive terms, uh, but the hardcore reality is even in a class of 20, 25 kids or even less, it's incredibly difficult for teachers to do that. And we also know uh, this comes out of Russell Bishop's work a lot, that students learn from each other. And so, yeah, the notion of individual plans, see, in many ways you could go to the extreme and say every student needs a, a learning progression. But in developing those learning progressions, they don't need to be unique to that student. They can overlap with other students. And I think this is, again, the nature of great teaching. I struggle with the notions of individualized and personalized. I know what they mean. I know the intense noble but I just don't see them realized uh, in the real world to be that effective. And so the idea is right, but I worry about it. Yeah. <clears throat> my, um, my background in uh, education, I started life um, on the West Coast um, 
at a little place called Wahika, which is now Fox Glasgow. And um, that was a soul charge school. And I think soul charge teachers individualize uh, their teaching. Um, <coughs> so I was in a, a school which, when I started, I was five years of age, and uh, it went, went right through to 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. And the teacher managed to individualize the teaching to the extent that, uh, you know, she was differentiating her teaching to accommodate to that full range of, uh, of age and to some extent ability. So teachers can, in some circumstances, individualize their teaching. Oh, that, 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 I, I believe we agree with that, but that's not often what's meant by individualization. This means end of each child needs a different kind of teaching and trajectory. Like the effect size is around about 0. 0.2. The effect size of differentiation is double that. And differentiation to me gets at a better notion that you have a set of uh, success criteria for a lesson. And if you allow multiple ways and multiple times to get there, that's where differentiation comes in. And as a consequence, you may tailor how you go about your teaching as a consequence of that. But individualization almost starts the other way around and say that for each child, you need a different teaching and um, learning experience. And that's what I'm struggling with. And when I look at those uh, sole claim or multi-age classrooms, which are quite powerful actually, um, then you, you, you can see those teachers uh, having to come up with what I would see more of a differentiation notion that I bet, David, there were times when you did learn with other students. There were some commonalities, maybe even with much older or much younger students. And it's that yeah. mindset that says every child needs to come to the success criteria. Some will take longer, some will take different. It's quite different to starting from the premise that every child is unique. And so that's my problem with individualization and personalization. Um, you know, as we get smarter with our technology, um, maybe and you know, there are some technology programs around at the moment that can track students' trajectory and find out that when a child is at a certain point, what's the optimal next step that all other children who have been at that point and have come from that particular direction, what was their next best step? And that those programs exist now and they're incredibly powerful. And that's what we want the teacher to think as well. So... Mm -hmm. I, I would rather talk about we have to accommodate the variance as opposed to let's start from the premise that we need individualized programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many students did she have in, did she have in the classroom, David? I think there are 12 of us. All right. And they covered <laughs> right from five-year-olds to 12-year-olds? Yes, yes, yes. And she was a good teacher. You know, I think she uh, managed to teach me how to read, how to write, how to do arithmetic, um, whilst at the same time accommodating to all the other children in the classroom. Um, well, I'm, another I'm afraid I'm going to ask you to call, call her out. Yeah. What was her name? Oh, Eileen O'Grady. I can we remember. should celebrate those teachers. Yes, yeah. Um, another experience that I had, uh, sort of to use anecdotes here, uh, <clears throat> one of my first teaching experiences uh, was to 
work in a class of new entrants, that's children who started school um, at the age of five. In New Zealand, um, uh, Kenneth, uh, children all start uh, school at the age of five. Yeah. And they when, start... when you're early enough then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they start on their fifth birthday. So uh, they come along any time. It's yeah. not as though they, they have to start at a particular um, time in the year. So my first teaching experience was with this group of new entrants. And they were starting at different days. So I would have, um, on one day, I would have one child uh, coming into the, the classroom and then another day uh, a new child would be coming into the classroom and you had to accommodate to different beginnings uh, for each child and that was a an interesting challenge so I had to um, individualize my teachings to accommodate to children coming in at, at different times during during the week and different times during the month that I was uh, I was working with that group of children so th that was a, a challenge um, and I had to teach individual children in the context of um, different uh, in the context of the broader classroom What's interesting, David, is that uh, many parts of Australia uh, have moved away from that model and you start in the term or the year in which you turn five. Yes. And that's yeah. had a particularly negative effect on many students. Like the difference between a child, like let's say in Australia now, you start in the year, you turn five, you have an 11 month difference in the students that are starting. And for those students, you know, it's a fifth or a sixth of their lives that's different. And so here's the sad fact is that in places like here in Australia now where they start on a particular, all start on the one day, the, one of the biggest predictors of their success is their star sign, what time of the year they were born. Whereas in the model that you're talking about, which used to be the case, for example, in South Australia, the students were much better served. Um, and as you know, in that model, uh, there was also different times students went to the next grade, to the you know, primer two or whatever we call it. Um, and so it was much more flexible. So I kind of mimicked. And I know, and this is the, coming back to UDL and what we're talking about here, I know it's harder for the teachers. It's much easier to have them all start on the one day. But you've got to ask, are we in this for us or in it for the students? And the model that you're portraying is a much better model to start school than the current model that we have when they all start on the same day. Mm. Now, in Kenneth, in Sweden, they don't start school till later. Yeah, we start when they are six years old. And yeah. just a few years ago, they didn't have to start then. Most uh, kids did that, but it's just uh, some years now that it has been compulsory to start at six years of age. Before that, it was uh, year seven. But now it's uh, at six. But everyone starts at the same time. Mm. So is it possible to have like a conclusion? We have inclusion as a philosophy. And then we have UDL as a way of thinking using 
offering multiple ways of teaching. But uh, and then we maybe should talk about learning strategies or learning methods more than teaching methods, maybe. If it should be like a student's perspective. Or well, both. I certainly I don't know. Wanna, yeah, both, but I certainly want to argue that if you actually monitor what happens in classrooms, mm. it's far too rare that teachers listen to how students are solving problems. And to be fair, a lot of us, let alone students, struggle with a language to articulate how we're thinking. And so mm. for too many students, it's a mystery as to how other students are getting the right answer, going in the right direction. And so, yes, I would argue that we do need to spend a lot more effort, time and attention to helping students learn different learning strategies. Because you've got that same dilemma again that you know, the students who are at the top of the distribution often have different learning strategies such that when the first doesn't work, they have another one. Yeah. Some kids don't. No. They have one strategy all the time, and that's listen and hope they understand it. And, and it goes back to what we were saying before about you know, so the premise of UDI. We may have to give them multiple ways of learning and give them yeah. multiple strategies. Yeah. And when we did an analysis recently of 20,000 hours of classroom transcripts, and we asked you know, how many times did we hear a teacher thinking aloud or how many times do we hear a student thinking aloud, the answer was zero. And so that is a major problem that I would want to see um, come into this whole model is how do we make the discussion about learning? And, you know, the, the, the dilemma is that sometimes this learning strategy is optimal in this context, but not optimal yeah. over here. Yeah. And that's the nature of learning. But yeah. we ignore that and hope all the students learn the same way. It's just not the case. So, yeah, you're right. And so you're putting it as a contrast there. You know, I'm, I'm, I want to put it as a different kind of contrast and, and take it away from uh, the teaching methods and the learning methods to yeah. say a mind frame as a teacher should be every student should be given the opportunity to maximally attain the success criteria of value that is put in front of the students. And hopefully we can make judgments about the cognitive complexity of those uh, success criteria, but assuming we've got those right and then allow for multiple ways, multiple times for them to get there, acknowledging students start in different places. And our job is to give the maximum uh, learning strategies to the students, uh, be agile in being finding out when they work, they don't work, which is kind of the essence of formative assessment. Yeah. Um, we should be teaching the students some of these skills so that they can walk away from uh, our, our schools being almost their own teachers and for them to know how to do this. And that's a big ask particularly in our today's classrooms, compared to what you were talking about, David. You know, the irony is that your teacher, Mr. Grady, had incredible variance and accommodated it. Now we've moved more and more and more to try and reduce that variance to make it easier for us to teach, but that's just not the nature of the world we live in anymore. So I want to come back and say that fundamentally what we've been talking about in this, in this last session is a way of thinking yeah. rather than just a set of strategies. Yeah. But should, in this way of thinking, should uh, sort of the Udell way of thinking be expanded to more focus on uh, on students' learning and metacognition and way of thinking? Yes. Learning. Yeah. Yes. And I'm going to look forward to David's uh, new work because I think, David, that uh, the two models, the classificatory and the relational, we need a third model, my friend. And I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> yeah.
Right. We have good work to do, Kenneth. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah. So I think this uh, talk will end up in, in more challenges. <laughs> No, but I think it's still clarifying. I'm, I mean, the, the last talk you came up with inclusion as a philosophy, then it works for everyone, I think. And if you look at UDL as a way of thinking, it also works, but you need to expand sort of the UDL concept to make it really functional for, for today's uh, school schools. Yeah. And I think... I, um... Yeah, I think the, the uh, core idea that um, that permeates what uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is the the relational concept yeah. um, that teaching is ultimately um, a relationship between um, a learner and a teacher, and yeah. uh, that has you know the underpinning of what what constitutes the the best social relationship between human beings um and that that should drive uh what we are what we're trying to achieve um relationship between two people between uh learners and other learners and ultimately uh, between the learners and the world yeah i agree so i think that could uh, uh, maybe you want to say something more about this john as well otherwise i think this sums up uh, today's discussion pretty well well i think david hit it right on the head yeah. it's that relationship uh, it's building that up and then there's a purpose of that relationship um, such that students can seek help. They can yeah. make mistakes. It is safe to be wrong. It is okay to learn from others and, and to take on more challenges, uh, but it is the basis. And re reflecting what we've said before and understanding that from the student's perspective, not just the teacher's perspective, which is the essence of what Russell was talking about in, in his work, particularly with minority students, and for some of the students that you know, we're talking about here that have classified in the old terms of special needs is they often have to be taught how to articulate what's going on for them, uh, how they're thinking. And that's the tough part of their work, but that's the part that's really good. Yeah. Okay, that can be the final words then for a really interesting talk once more. Uh, I'm just spinning around, I'm thinking and thinking and thinking, but uh, we will uh, finish this talk and I will continue to think and we have actually a lot a lot of interesting things to, to do and accomplish. Okay, thank you so much thank you. for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.